you know, I heard a definition once of the word genius that, again, because that word's thrown around so much and people use it to describe Tupac. And I think it's, you know, well-deserved in his case as well. But the definition I heard that I thought was appropriate was genius is an individual that makes you see the world in a way you never saw it before. I said, I'm going to go with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with that. Welcome back, everyone, to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we owe our entire aesthetic sensibility to Denzel Washington and the Book of Eli. So on today's show, we're joined by Alan Hughes, the Emmy-nominated director of some of my favorite movies, including Minister Society, The Presidents, From Hell, and The Book of Eli. Most recently, he directed Their Mama, the Hulu docuseries on Tupac and the Phoenix Accord. And we talk about Tupac's complicated life, death, and legacy. And then we dive into my relationship with Hughes' work, which at this point is almost 30 years long. Actually, more than 30 years. I forget how old I am sometimes. <laughs> and then, for Dear Damon, I'm joined by award-winning author and historian Blair L.M. Kelly as we advise a woman, a black woman, who's anxious that her new boyfriend, who is also black, has dated nothing but white women before her. All right, y'all. Let's get it. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So joining me today is Alan Hughes, director of the Emmy-nominated documentary series, Dear Mama, which is available on Hulu. Alan, what's good, man? I'm good, Damien. How you doing? I'm good. So I was 16, 17 years old when Pac was killed, right? Mm-hmm. I was 25. I was a junior in high school when that happened. And I was always more like the East Coast, Biggie, Woo, Mob Deep, like those were my niggas. You know what I mean? And Pac, I appreciated Pac, Mm -hmm. but Pac was on the other side. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's funny because like even in my high school, there was a bit of a divide where the Hoopers were more East Coast leaning, but all the football players were like the West Coast, Pac, Dre, Snoop, even like No Limit a little bit back then. But one thing that always struck me about him, even then, is that he seemed so, there was a maturity. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And again, I'm 16 and he's 25, so he's obviously older than me. But he still just felt like grown in a way that was rare for a 25-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so in the last few years, you know, watching this documentary, revisiting some of Tupac's music, some of his interviews, I was trying to see if that feeling of him being grown was just the perspective. Like, you know, at a 16-year-old, of course, a 25-year-old is going to be grown. Mm-hmm. And I'm 44 now, and a 25-year-old is going to be like a baby. Mm-hmm. But I still felt that way. You know what I mean? I still felt that way. Like, even when I'm re-watching this doc to, you know, to prepare to interview you, it's like, yo, this, he was a rare 25. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you, you obviously had more experience with him, knew him. Did you feel that in the moment, too? 
You know, it's interesting, your observation, because on a lot of levels, he was very advanced for his age because of Fanny and the way she reared him and what he saw early, what he experienced early, which most of us don't see and experience. So there's that too, not just the teachings, right? But on an emotional level, it was quite the opposite. He could be quite immature. So Mm. there was that constant duality with him. If he was angry or if he was jealous, you're looking at a seven-year-old, you know, in that regard. But everything else, as far as his knowledge, his understanding of our culture and politics and history. You see that 17-year-old interview of him in high school, you know how advanced he is. Yeah. Me and you can't even talk like that right now, probably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so he was definitely advanced in those areas, big time. And your point about, I guess, the impulsivity. Yeah, it's something. And I appreciated that you, you know, you started a doc with him. He's in a car. You see him giving him middle fingers. And you know, you're watching this like, yo, Tupac, you're a superstar. Like, exactly. At that point in his life, he was a superstar, a megastar. That's right. And it's like, why are you doing this? That's right. Like, why are you putting yourself, putting your people, putting all the people who are dependent on you also through this? Yeah. And there was like this, almost like a childlike impulsivity where... It seemed like he would let things get to him where it might have been a better decision just to, like, chill. Yeah. But he didn't have no chill. <laughs> he didn't have no chill, no. No, he didn't have that But And you're right. That's the better way to put it. It's like he absolutely had a childlike impulsivity. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to put it. But also, you know, when we talk about legend and that, that word is thrown around just as liberally as genius now, which is all bullshit. When people use the word legend, I go, there's no such thing as legend without running through and in and out of fires with your fans. Mm-hmm. You know, death-defying shit. They talk about this hip-hop artist as legend and this hip-hop artist or this artist is a legend just because they've been around 20 years. You're not a legend because you've been around 20 years. You're a legend because you went through death-defying things and brought your family, friends, and fans with you. <laughs> and so part of the childlike impulsivity is also what made him a legend, legendary. I've never really quite heard somebody put, you know, or define a concept of legend like that in terms of it being something that cannot actually happen unless you skirt death, mm-hmm. essentially. Well, the stakes are high in the case of Muhammad Ali. Yeah. You know, where you sacrifice your career, you know, things like that. So it's about sacrifice. So true legendary behavior is about either a sacrifice of your life, a sacrifice of your livelihood. Mm. But you have to sacrifice something that matters. Mm-hmm. I believe. You remember, too, you're 44 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And so you remember a time when we didn't talk about it like we're talking about it now, but we knew it meant that. We felt it meant that. Legendary, you know? Well, and the thing is, is like, I agree with you. Like, I think that when we think about people who we should consider legends, consider icons, there does have to be some sacrifice involved with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we consider that now, that definition now in terms of like people who are artists, entertainers, athletes, politicians, whatever, we look just at accomplishments. That's right. You know what I mean? And, and what they were able to do. And the thing is taking nothing away from what a person did, but in order to reach that sort of status, there has to be something that was given up. Yes. Something that was risked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And that also, you know, I heard a definition once of the word genius that, again, because that word's thrown around so much 
and people use it to describe Tupac. And I think it's, you know, well-deserved in his case as well. But the definition I heard that I thought was appropriate was genius is an individual that makes you see the world in a way you never saw it before. I said, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. Because all these other definitions of it or how it's been bastardized, I, I can't agree with that, you know. Well, speaking of genius, mm-hmm. you watch the documentary, you watch Dear Mama, and anyone with just a cursory knowledge of Tupac mm-hmm. knows the story of his mom, knows the relationship with the Black Panthers. But I think the level of connection to the Panthers mm-hmm. and how important his mom was, is mm-hmm. to the movement, to the Panthers, is something that I don't know if everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at just Tupac's relationship and upbringing and just being around all the people that Afini put him around. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, of course, of course he was going to be who he was. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because of how he was brought up, because of all the shit that was around him. That's right. That helped mold him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering when you're creating a documentary, how important was it to you to really just drive that home? Just that background. I think it's critical to drive that home because, you know, when we're coming up, we are what we eat mm-hmm. and we continue to be what we eat, what we digest. But you can imagine a five-year-old Tupac at a lot of those events they had back then and seeing those speakers in that movement. By that time, they're coming, they're waning, obviously, but and he's showing up to those things that his mother's organizing those events to get Geronimo Pratt out of prison or this one, that one, the wrench strike she was involved in. But he's seeing world-class orators from the time that he's one, two, three, four, five. And if you have that in your DNA already, in the case of Tupac, his mother being that type of intelligence that's almost scary to people, mm-hmm. and the way she articulates herself is next level as well, or power, and to be around those people when they're activating like that, and you're five years old, and these are your heroes. So it's just going in your body in a different way. Because you're meant for it, you know. Although I think the heartbreaking thing about Tupac is because of all the traumas that he inherited, mm-hmm. because of the PTSD that Afeni had. Dear Mama is about Tupac living in the wake of his mother's actions and how it's going into him, even in prison when he's in her womb, right? Mm-hmm. So when you go back to what we were talking about earlier about this um, this childlike impulsivity, that part of the brain is... That's the heartbreaking thing about Tupac. He had all the gifts of a world-class leader, but the emotional part was challenged and compromised because of what the FBI did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they were successful in their in their mission. This is something that I maybe wouldn't have put together maybe 10 years ago, but, you know, the way that he was beat by the cops in Oakland, you know, beat so bad that it gave him alopecia and, you know, the, the bald head that Tupac is known for That's is right. something that was mm-hmm. a reaction to being brutalized by the police. And it's like, we know now that getting beat over the head like that, getting concussions has like a long-term sort of effect on your impulsivity, Mm -hmm. on, you know, all the things that that regulate behavior in your brain, you know, the seat. And and again, obviously we don't know whether or not he had like CTA or anything like that. But again, when you get beat like that, it does have a long-term effect on you. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that combined with what the FBI did, you know what I mean, to his mom, you create this person who, again, has all of these gifts, all of these just talents, all of these like transcendent abilities, 
but this recklessness also yeah that exists in contrast well you could say that it exists in contrast but there were also parts of that recklessness that helped fuel his creativity and help fuel his personality his music but it got the best of him sometimes too for sure tupac was the third rail you know like it's electric you know you could feel it when you see his career it was only five years long and here we are 27 years after his passing he's been gone longer than he was here Mm -hmm. you know and there's something about those stars that burn that bright that hot and to your point i mean the alchemy that goes into that is utterly uh transcendent and combustible and contradictory all at the same time you know it's a strange thing but it's what made him special one of the things that, again, when you watch a documentary, which, you know, this is my own, I guess, sensibility, but I always prefer documentaries to biopics, mm-hmm. particularly biopics about people that I remember. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because then you, you got to act it, like you got this whole uncanny valley thing happening where you have the actor that kind of looks like the person, yeah. the music that kind of sounds like the music, but it's not the person, it's not the music. And so the documentary, to me, does all the things that Poppy does without the dramatic performance. Yeah. But when you add the direction, you make it more melodramatic, you make it, you give it that rising action, you give it that climax. And, you know, one of the things that I guess was a recurring theme throughout the documentary also was the idea of transformation. Mm-hmm. Where you see Tupac, again, we're introduced to him as a young kid, 17 years old, his hair is different, he's leaner. His personality still shining through. Yeah. You know what I mean? But all he is at that point is just hair and teeth. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> his hair and teeth. That's right. You know, right. and and again he transforms, <laughs> you know, over a course of time into the Tupac that we remember. And with that, I wanted to ask you also, thinking about transformation, also thinking about the concept of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Now, famously, Tupac was cast on Menace. Mm-hmm. You fired him from that. You know what I mean? And him and his boys ended up jumping, you and your brother. Yeah. After that. And this is something that, you know, he apologized, but you didn't necessarily forgive him mm-hmm. for that until years later. Mm-hmm. And if I'm mistaken, not until they reached out to you to do this documentary. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, do you think that for you, that forgiveness would have happened? if not for being asked to do this? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm not one to hold grudges, so it's odd that I discovered that about myself. Mm -hmm. But I also discovered that the incident, when it happened, was so traumatic. And keep in mind that this is the only time, and I didn't know a lot of, like, this stuff started kicking up, like, I just didn't recognize things. My brother and I were on such a trajectory like this with menace to society we were mm-hmm. we were going to Cannes film festival and a couple of weeks after that incident happened you know the soundtrack was doing great the movie was it, and we were on all the shows and all the news but we were everywhere mm-hmm. so you know we you end up in Cannes and there's like moments like roger ebert walking right up next to us and putting his arms around us after we just saw the cisco and ebert review you're living a dream so there was no time for me to ever go, damn, I almost died that day. And people don't realize how bad that was. It was, it was one of those, cause it was gangbangers that he had. Mm. And there was this palpable sense when it all was going down. Cause he was over there. They were on me. I just remember looking down cause I could just see blood going, mm. you know, and just feeling my body moving different ways. I go, Alan, you're probably going to die right now. I remember that. And I prepared for it. 
So you're right. It wasn't until I did this that I didn't realize it. Now, mind you, I had bought his music. Mm -hmm. I would listen to his music. I would enjoy his music. But I guess I hadn't forgiven him. I just didn't know until this thing started triggering those things. But I'll tell you the thing that really, beyond forgiveness, and I think the forgiveness came through compassion. Mm -hmm. I didn't have compassion for him before. And as I'm making this dear mama and I'm seeing all the things that went into his journey and his experience, I'm like, oh, because there was a lot of things that just didn't make sense to me. Now they made sense. So I think forgiveness for me came through compassion. And the thing about trauma, fam, and again, this is something you know, it's like it's sneaky as fuck. Man. <laughs> I ain't thought of it. You think you're over a thing. You think you've gotten past a thing. You've forgotten about a thing. But then like a memory. Uh, an image, a song, a smell yeah. can re-engage a traumatic situation that you might have just repressed and like, you know what, I'm done with this. You put it in the box, you put it deep inside of you and something happens that kind of regurgitates that thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no doubt. And I'm happy for you that you were able to find some sort of peace, mm -hmm. I guess, with that. Yeah. Because, you know, that sort of thing, even if you don't realize that it's, fucking with you it does you know yeah no it, it affects you know i've never said this before but you know when me and my brother first went to europe to make from hell with johnny depp mm -hmm. we're biracial kids so it was always weird shit anyway you know but going to europe going to amsterdam i was like wow i felt a, a sense of ease and acceptance i had never and none of the volatility that we deal with here in america mm -hmm. and albert ended up staying there Mm -hmm. and lives there to this day. And I don't think it was because of necessarily what happened there, but I think that's where things started going like this, you know, for us. And just getting back to Menace and tell a like really quick story. Like I'm hanging out with my cousins. I, I come from a big family on my dad's side. A lot of male cousins too, older than me. We all like played sports, all hoop. So you have like this, all this like real like masculine energy <laughs> down to me and my family. And so I'm hanging out with my cousins. We're in Youngstown, Ohio at the time. And we decided to caravan to the theater in Boardman, Ohio, which is about a half hour away to go see Menace. And we're like 15 deep. We go to the theater. We see it. Everyone is just transfixed, you know, watching this. Because again, Menace, Boys, Juice, all of them come out at around the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's just, we had never seen anything on screen like this before. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then the way that Menace ends if you're being spoiled by this, I mean, you've had 30 years to see this movie. <laughs> I'm talking to the audience. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sorry <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet, but it's going to be some spoilers. <laughs> it ends with the narrator dying, mm -hmm. which is something that even, again, I'm, I'm like 11, 12 years old. And this is something that even though I didn't necessarily have the articulation to understand this, you kind of just understood from consuming culture consuming movies is that okay if someone is telling a story mm -hmm. then at the very least that means that the person telling the story survives yeah right and so yeah can you maybe walk me through the decision to kill your narrator uh, um <laughs> yeah. i mean some people critics call it the sunset boulevard effect and I, I don't even know if we were sophisticated enough at that time to know what the fuck sunset boulevard was mm -hmm. uh, but classic film and has since become one of my favorite films where the protagonist or the narrator is narrating beyond the grave or from the grave or right before the death or whatever. I know that we made the decision, and you can see it in Menace, in the last few seconds, you can see the flashes 
of the film. Mm-hmm. And that was to signify that his life was flashing before his eyes. We made a decision. When you look at New Jack City, which was like the colorful, big production hood film pop, and it really worked and, mm-hmm. and did real good, great box office. Juice did well. Juice was more like a gritty. Juice more felt like an 80s New York yeah. hip-hop film than it did a 90s film, mm-hmm. you know? Um, then you have Boys in the Hood, which was kind of like the legitimate L.A. hood film and had all the archetypes. And then, you know, uh, Ricky got killed and everyone was heartbroken, but the main guy lived and went to college, right? Mm-hmm. And I just remember my brother and I going, I remember during the process of writing the script, I said, Someone has to either die or get shot in the ass every 10, 15 minutes. That's important. Mm-hmm. So the audience never feels comfortable that any random thing can take out one of their favorite people, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the one thing. And the second thing and most important thing is our hero has got to die. And our hero has got to be the worst guy in Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Our hero is worse than Doughboy. Yeah. So that was the alchemy that went into that thinking. I'll say something that's really interesting that strikes me. That's a parallel, dear mama. I've seen a lot of people cry or they tell me they cry during dear mama. Or I've shown some scenes, particularly where Tupac is in the Baltimore performing arts school and he's doing the moving piece to John McClane's so starry night. Mm-hmm. And then you see him morph into the gangster guy and people are crying during that nine minute sequence. I go, why are you crying? And I don't have to ask why they're crying. It's the same reason they fell in love with this kid. Mm-hmm. They fell in love with this kid. So that was our goal and menace was like understanding the same reason I did Dear Mama's like, let's make sure that the average white person understands why these kids are the way they are. And once they understand and once they get involved with these kids and laugh and cry with these kids, once you take them out, they're going to be devastated. They're going to feel that mm-hmm. in a way they don't with those other films we felt, you know. There's one film from around that era that I feel menace also reminds me of a bit and that's king of new york yeah king of this, yeah. And, and with king of new york you also have again spoiler alert but everyone dies <laughs> in king of new york or like everyone <laughs> dies yeah. Yeah. In, that, yeah. in, that, in that movie and you know you're so used to watching movies that have plot armor where you know like you watch boys you know that nothing's going to happen to trey that's right you know from the beginning nothing's going to happen to this boy you know that nothing's going to happen to Omar Epps and Juice. Yep. You know what I mean? You, you just know that from watching movies um, enough. You get that that certain type of literacy. Yeah. Right. And that's one thing that I appreciated about your work and not just with Menace, but with their prez, with From Hell, you know, where there was like a certain, I don't know if nihilism is the word. Yeah. That's the word. <laughs> but, you know, they had these endings that just were distinct from what I was consuming and what was popular yeah. back then. You know what I mean? Where it was just like, it ended on like, uh, like holy shit, that, wait, what? Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. You know what it is, is it, it is an element of, of nihilism or nihilism, however you tomato, tomato, that word. I fuck words up all the time, man. That's just a recurrent thing on this. <laughs> so I, it might be, might be nihilism. I don't know. <laughs> I literally don't know how to say that word. So I'm with you. Um, when you look at all of those films we mentioned, I think Menace is the only true noir film of all those you just mentioned. In noir, nihilism is the religion, mm-hmm. right? And 
even New Jack City, you go, oh, it's noirish if you think about what's happening and where it goes. But the execution of it is not. Mm-hmm. It's more um, peacocking and in all the best senses of the word. It was a music video that was it was heightened reality. It wasn't quite real. Yeah. But they all, you know, not that you're asking this question, but they all played their part in the culture going, oh, shit, this is a thing mm-hmm. that's interesting, you know. Now, and I'm thinking of, you know, some of your more recent works, particularly the Book of Eli, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, where it ends on, you know, you have a setting which is as fucking brutal as it can possibly be, post-apocalyptic. There are just roaming bands of, like, marauders, you know, pirates, rapists, whatever. And, you know, you have a blind man who is trying to deliver a Bible to the West Coast. But that ends actually on a positive note where the bad guys get it. The good people survive on. And so I'm curious also, like, I don't know, has there been a change in your outlook about the world or perhaps what you're trying to communicate with these distinct sort of endings? Yeah, I was starting production on the Defiant Ones. And I remember Dr. Dre had one request. He said, Alan, this thing is, no matter what you do, it's got to be inspiring. It's got to be inspiring. And quite frankly, I was like, man, it just sounded corny to me at the time, you know? Uh-huh. And I said, Dre, I don't know what you're talking about because anything I've ever done, the protagonist either dies or goes to prison at the end. And I didn't realize that just came out that way. Even Book of Eli, even though it's beautiful because he has fulfilled his purpose completely and he is tired, <laughs> he still passes away, right? Mm. And somehow that went into me, though. It did go into me. If you look at the Defiant Ones, you'll see it's pure inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's pure like, how do I, oh, this is how they did it. This is how you do it. This is how you take your gift and find your bliss and go with it, whatever. Or here's how you deal with hardships or when something happens and you overcome it through your creativity. So it started there for me, you know, mm-hmm. this new outlook on, because I also, while, while I was editing Defiant Ones, there were these sequences that we were developing that I would get these goosebumps. I go, oh, I still these goosebumps. I never paid attention to them before. I go, that's a universal thing. If you get goosebumps, Alan, that means the world's getting goosebumps, <laughs> you know? So I start getting addicted to the goosebump moments. And that's why that thing is like, boom, boom, boom. Everything's like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dear Mama was different, as tragic as it seemingly can be or sound. I was searching for the inspiring moments that we can all connect to because you don't have this without that, you know? And those goosebump moments, you know, whether it was on the Fanny side in her, her Panther journey or on Tupac's journey, like what are those moments that where you're like, wow, I'm in the midst of something magical here. And how do I capture that so people can feel it? And all that goes back to when I say people are crying when they're watching the Tupac thing. Mm-hmm. People who don't even like hip hop or didn't even care for him are in tears because they find, they saw some magic. They saw some magic and they don't want to lose them. And there's something inspiring in that and tragic in that, you know? If I would have done Dear Mama 15 years ago, it would have been all doom and gloom. Alan Hughes, appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming through. Stuck with Damon Young. This was a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. It's great to meet you. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. And again, uh, Dear Mama on Hulu. Please watch it. Also, all the movies that we spoiled today, if you haven't seen them, (laughs) you know what I mean? Go ahead, go ahead and check them out. But again, thanks, my man. Mr. Young, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, no doubt. All 
Up next for Dear Damon, we'll be joined by award-winning author and historian Blair L.M. Kelly. But next, Damon Hayes. So every Saturday morning, I get up really early, go to a YMCA, and I play pickup basketball. You know, and for people who play pickup on a regular basis, you know that a good pickup game is rare. And so when you find this diamond in the rough, you treasure it. And, you know, when you combine the fact that, you know, we all have to get up early, we all have to travel, we all have to look forward to this on a day that people have to sleep in Saturday, it makes it even more treasure. And now the game itself isn't like the most competitive game. I mean, there's various levels of skill and age, but everyone pretty much knows how to play. And it's a gentleman's game. The sportsman's game, which is <laughs> why my issue is such a ethical quandary. Okay, so there's a 75-year-old man who also comes to the game. He doesn't come every week, but he comes every once in a while. And as much as we love him, you know, he's a very kind man, very sweet, very nice, talks to everybody, just a very nice old man. He ruins the run because he is terrible at basketball. Now, I'm not going to say that he's terrible because he's 75, because I have played with guys in their 60s and even early 70s who were still useful on the basketball court. But he literally cannot move. <laughs> he stands in place. He can't play defense. He can't play offense. You throw him the ball. It's a 50-50 chance of he even catching it. And so if he's on your team, you're basically guaranteed to lose. And it's a sort of pickup game where you can't not pick people if someone walks in the gym they have to play. So I guess my quandary is that I feel bad. I get annoyed when I go to the run and he's on my team, or even if I go to the run and he's on the other team, because getting an easy victory is not fun either. Right. And so I feel annoyed with that. But I also recognize the social good of this older man getting up every Saturday morning and coming to play with us. And so I guess I have some ambivalence about how I am supposed to feel. And adding insult to injury is the fact that if he were 40 <laughs> and had the same sort of effect on the basketball court, we would be much less kind <laughs> to him. So it's not about his age, but 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 his age actually acts as a form of affirmative action where because he's older, we like, oh, you know, that's just him. You know, don't mind him. And, and you and you lose all day long if he's on your team. So anyway, ethical quandary, moral quandary, I don't know what to do. I need some help. Blair L.M. Kelly is the award-winning author of Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, which is found today wherever you can get books. It's available. Go cop it. Blair, what's good? Oh, what is good? That's a good question. <laughs> okay, you got, got, got existential on the nigga, okay? Right. Okay, Socrates. Oh, my God. <laughs> Plato. I mean, it's, it's tough times out here on the street. I mean, it depends on which streets you're on. A lot of these streets are hot. I mean, these streets are hot, literally. Yes. Also, you know yes. what I mean? The hottest summer, I think, that we've ever, the, 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 the earth has earth? experienced since they've been keeping track of hot summers. This is stressful. Yeah. Where are you right now? I live in North Carolina. 
Okay, so you, so the streets are hot. Yes, I love it here. It's very black, and I love it. All right, so on that note, I'm going to bring in Morgan, the illustrious producer of Stuck All with right. Damon Young. Morgan, Morgan, what we got this week? Dear Damon, I'm a black woman who usually dates black men, like the guy I'm dating right now is black, but he usually dates white women. I'm a little worried that he's not going to continue to be that into me. Do you think this relationship can last if I'm not his typical type? Ooh. Okay. You know, I'm getting ready to have like my 22nd anniversary. So me and dating, good God. But I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) I dated last century. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I've been feeling like it was just, you know, a few weeks ago, but no, not really. Um, I think it it matters who the person is. And how old they are and like what happened to them before they met you. Because sometimes people, you know, they thought they liked one thing and then it didn't work the way they expected it to. So maybe he might be really into her. And it also depends on like what she looks like and like, you know, how fly (laughs) she is and like how, you know, he might be like, wow, you know, I I can't, I can't get this. I I, I can't can't get this elsewhere. Yeah. Once you go black, once you go black, even works for niggas too. Like once you go black for the first time. So it's just so many variables. Like (laughs) she could be everything or she could be like, not quite it. Well, I guess, I guess the the response to that though, is like, okay. So if, if he is so enthralled with this black woman, with black women, Mm -hmm. why wasn't he that way in the beginning? Like what happened? Like why? You know, if his track record is that he has dated nothing but white women to this point, I get why someone would be skeptical. It's like, you know, and it's it's been, a you know, it's it's been a minute since I was dating, too. But (laughs) if I were if I were in the dating, if I were in the dating arena and I was dating someone and I met someone who dated nothing but, you know, meth dealers. Right. (laughs) 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 And then but it's like, you know what? I want to see what it's like to date a writer, <laughs> yeah, a writer and podcaster. Oh. I'd be like, damn, like what, what's happening here? Is she really into me? I think I'm dope. But at the yeah, same time, it's like, not you know, dope. it doesn't like your track record. Like this doesn't this doesn't fit. OK, well, OK, this, there's a lot of moving variables here, right? Like how black is she? Like, you know, is she like culturally really, really black or is she like? you know, a person who could just blend anywhere she goes. Diet black. Yeah. 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 Or did he date white women that like black people or did he date like white women who don't like black people normally? Yeah. And I'll, I'll say just, you know, just for the record that, you know, black is black. Right. Yes. Et cetera, et cetera. Black people are black people. There's 40 million black people. So that means there's 40 million ways to be black. But to your point, there are some people, some of us who embrace blackness a bit more than other black people if he likes culturally white things like does she like culturally white things so i was on dear prudence the dear Mm -hmm. prudence podcast uh, and one of the questions was about someone who is dating someone who does the civil war reenactments on a weekend and so maybe this Mm. was a brother who does the civil war reenactments and and met you know his white women there but then happened to just find the one black woman <laughs> who was there oh, wow. it was like you know what shit i have found 
my Nubian Civil War reenacting <laughs> princess. Civil War reenactment is a line. I mean, like, that's a whole her. different thing. Like, were you free there in your reenactment? Like, oh, wow. I don't even know. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm stressed. So, hopefully, the brother is not a reenactor. Who <laughs> though? Okay. We're, we're just going to pray for her. Just stay loose. Just stay calm. Just see how it goes. Have you had any experience with that, with you, you know, dating someone who, I guess, you meet them mm-hmm. and you find out about their history and it's like a bunch, it's like either people who were white or people who like just were living different lives and you were completely different. Have, have you ever had that sort of experience back back in your previous century? <laughs> Last century. <laughs> dating life when in, a, in the, previous, the previous millennium. <laughs> i i did i have dated men who liked you know fairer skinned black women okay and you know pretty systematically and then they met me Mm -hmm. and they they realized the error of their ways and like how wonderful i was and so i i have changed people's minds about life and possibilities in those subtle ways Mm -hmm. and i i have dated people who have dated white women but i think they were culturally white women who date black men i don't think you know, as opposed to white women who generally date white men, and then then he was added in too. So I think that's also like a spicy white. Yes, yeah, you know, like you know, yeah, your auntie who's white. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you had a white auntie somewhere in that I, family. Nah, we, in that nah, family we, we we had. I mean, there there are people in there my was family. A cousin. There are people in my family who are very light. You know what I mean? Okay, who are very okay. light, but they're, they're not light enough to pass. Okay, but they're light. Right, sure, you're like sure. light skin, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Right, um, like they don't just pass the paper bag test. They they like they pass like they the excel. the. <laughs> 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 <sighs> you know, yeah. So we we got these, you know, very very like light members of the family, and and okay. and I feel like most Black American families have that. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, have I have that. a whole little branch that's, you know, we're all the colors. And, you know, to your point, you know, maybe this black guy um, who has dated nothing but white is, you know, maybe this woman is, is very light-skinned. Maybe she is more comfortable in culturally white spaces. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there are those factors to consider. Yes. Yeah, maybe she has a lot in common with those white women. Maybe she's, you know, culturally not that far off from yeah. the kind of women he dated. I don't that's that's the question. Like is she his type in other ways beyond black and white? That's a good question because I think, you know, this question also gets to a larger, I guess, anxiety that I think some people have mm-hmm. um where you presume like okay, if a guy has dated nothing but more petite women, yeah. then that means that he he's not attracted to thicker women at all. Yes. Or if a guy has dated nothing but lighter skinned women, then that means he's not attracted to darker skinned women at all. Yes. Or, or vice versa. And I don't know. Like, I think that that can be true mm-hmm. at times, but I don't think that it's like a universal truth. And it's also like a shallow truth. Like, back in the previous century when I was dating, everybody looked different. They were from different walks of life. Mm-hmm. It was just something I liked about them as a human. Now, mm-hmm. mind you, they were all black men. But they were very different black men. Like if you put them all in the room, you'd be like, there's nothing in, there's no thread here. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes you just like who you like. And that's that's okay. Maybe he was just going through. Maybe maybe he lived in Alaska. Maybe he was, like, you know, far off somewhere. Yeah. And he have a lot of options. Yeah, that's that needs to be considered. You know, he, he could have he could have been in Montana. He could have been one of them niggas that like they're hiring like in Montana to like for like exactly. pipes to like yes, drill for oil, pipes. whatever the fuck they do mm-hmm. in Montana, and they Drilling. make a, and they make a lot of money doing money. that. But again, if you are one of those people who does a thing like that, you're not going to find a lot of black women. Yes. Also there. Yeah, he was just going to the, you know, the company store and he didn't meet any sisters there. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, in the Montana happy hours, the you know, the Montana Montana State basketball do they games. In Montana? Is it, I don't, I don't know. I don't right. know what they do. This I don't know what wrong. they do. I don't know what they do in Montana. But maybe when he was in Montana, this is just all he had access to. But yes. then he moved back to DC. Yes. And now he's back in DC. He's like, you know, and I'm back in the mix. Yeah. I you know, I need and he's you know ready. Yeah, he's ready. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we give his brother all the. All yeah, the I, I, the I, I feel possible. like I feel like we're giving him too much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're giving him too much. But he did start talking to her, and he there must be something. Why not? I mean, I don't think we should cut people off based on categories. I don't. I, I, so I don't think that we should cut people off. I agree, but I think no, that her. No. I think that her anxiety, her skepticism. Is yes. is legitimate. It you seems valid. I mean? It's valid, and, and there there was a guy last century who I dated <laughs> who only dated white women before me. Okay, and it just it never got like we were never double dutching. The rhythm was not right, mm-hmm. and so it was short lived. It was short lived. Okay, we'll it see. Was, he was a nice yeah. guy. I liked him. Yeah, but I do also feel like I wouldn't want to be anyone's first black boyfriend. Is that a thing? I'm sure it is a thing. Have we heard of this? We have to look back in history. I mean. <laughs> Doesn't everybody like black men? <laughs> I mean, you know. Y'all are the, the yes, yes, I mean, yes category I'm, for I'm, everybody. I'm, okay. okay. I'm not going mean, to confirm or deny that. I think so. If we look on the streets, there's a lot of yeses. I mean. They might be shallow yeses, but they are yeses. You know what? This this conversation took a turn. <laughs> That I wasn't, I wasn't anticipating, I wasn't ready for. But the thing is, when you tune in to suck with Damon Young, when you tune in, when you listen to this podcast, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't, you don't know. A question about dating shifts into a question about, you know, how, I don't know, how Idrisy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, is Idris getting a lot of nose on the street? Yeah, but Idris is an anomaly. You know, we're, we're everyone that ain't Idris out here. Actually, when you look at him, he's just a nice looking brother with like confidence. He's he's not super pretty or anything. He's just real confident, manly. Idris is one of the guys that like he, even he, even back the less evolved me where I was less mm-hmm. willing to admit that a man was attractive. Okay. And so like if I was watching The Wire with like a with like a woman back then. Oh, he was pretty on The Wire. Yeah, I would say know. something like, you know what? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, I could see why women like him. <laughs> and, and in your heart, you were like, "Damn!" Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I could, I could see, I could, I could see, I could see why he's beautiful. But you know, he's beautiful the like way him. that black men are beautiful. Like he's just, he's not like pretty. Well, yeah, there's a, there's like a very like masculine sort of yeah. like hyper masculine energy that he that he exudes. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, plus, he's tall. He's brown. 
you know yes. his his accent wasn't great you know what i mean his accent <laughs> wasn't great on the wire like he had a, like you could you could always tell he was on a precipice of bruv like he was like this close <laughs> to bruv <laughs> like every other oh scene he was he was this close <laughs> he wasn't excelling in the, the british actor school yeah. of imitating american yeah. black men and, and a baltimore accent is hard already like a baltimore yes, hood I accent I, I grew up in philadelphia i can't do a baltimore yeah. accent so, so I, I will give him props for at least attempting to do that and, and sounding, you know, somewhat realistic. But getting back to the question, I think that you're again, this person's skepticism, this person's anxiety is legitimate. You should keep it. You should look for signs. Look for signs. You know, is he is he expecting you to act white, whatever that means? Is he, mm. you know, trying to fit you in like a certain construct or a certain like standard? That maybe I, you don't fit into. Is this what we want her to do? We want. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying to look to just have your antennas up. I don't know. I disagree. My okay. advice here is to not operate from a place of fear, but a place of confidence. You know who you are. You know you are a wonderful person. Be yourself. And if he gets into it, he will. If he doesn't, he won't. But if you sit there and worry and stress, he's not going to like you. That's not sexy. Just be, just be yourself. And enjoy yourself and see how it goes. Stress not. You're the prize, honey, not him. Okay. I wasn't with you until the last part. The last part, she I was like, you know what? I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, and, and again, I don't think that, that having an anxiety means that you need to act out of character. I just think that it means that you are more aware of things. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not a person that believes in acting from a place of fear. Act from confidence. Have fun. Just, just get it. You know, just have fun. It'd be all right. He'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so Blair Kelly, we have been trying to get you on the show for a minute. And a it's minute? been it's been a hard minute? because you've been on tour with your book. Yeah, I was on tour. I was. Can you tell us a bit about this book that is keeping you away from the important thing, which is our show? <laughs> it's called Black Folk, The Promise of the Black Working Class. And it uses my family stories and other people's family stories to talk about the Black working class in history and in our present, to think about what it means, how it feels, what the experience of being the Black working class is like, rather than sort of, um, you know, looking at workspaces or unions or, mm -hmm. you know, the traditional kind of way that we've talked about labor. This really is trying to capture the essence of like who working Black people are and have been and what makes us unique and provides for that special contribution that I think Black people have made to mm -hmm. this country. You know, and it's funny, like that term working class. It's complicated. There's so many euphemistic phrases that exist, like in just our lexicon, right? And mm -hmm. working class is very often a shorthand for white yeah. working class. Like when people refer to working class voters, you know, working class people, you know, particularly like on the news or like in political speeches or whatever, it, it is, they're talking about white working class mm -hmm. people and, mm -hmm. and completely mm -hmm. forgetting about the black working class. You know yeah. what I mean? If they even remembered them in the first place, like there's no, you know, yeah. stock footage of like black people working as our mental lexicon about the working class in this country we talk about the black poor we mm -hmm. talk about black crime we talk about black neighborhoods as being pathologized which i don't think they are um but we as a country do not talk about black people at work yeah all right well 
black folks, mm-hmm. Blair. Yes. Appreciate you. This was a lot of fun. It's good to finally see you. Yes. Thank you for coming through. Thanks for having me. Again, I just want to thank Alan Hughes, Blair Kelly coming through today. Great conversation, great guests, great topic. And thank you all for coming through. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you chose to listen to another episode of Stuck With Damon Young. And remember, Stuck With Damon Young is available wherever you get your podcasts. But if you are on the Spotify app, there are some interactive games and polls and questionnaires. You can have some fun. Just have some fun on the app. Go ahead, knock yourself out. And if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, hit me up at Damon at crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall Stressler. 